Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm -hmm. Come together. Welcome back. You're listening to the Fem South podcast, and I'm your host, Lee. Today, we're going to be talking about homeschooling and virtual school. Because of the pandemic and the school system starting back in a few weeks, the decision between virtual school and in person school is on everyone's minds right now. Um, I have my own questions about virtual school because I have two kids that are going into high school and one going into intermediate school. And so here to help me talk about this is my special guest, Kadeen Christie. Kadeen Christie is a writer. She's married to her childhood sweetheart, Antonio. She's in her eighth year of homeschooling. There are three children, Zarai, Zahara, and Markley. Kadeen has her BA in sociology from Keene University and her master's in counseling from Capella University. She's written for Bella Grace Magazine, Go Magazine, Where Women Create Magazine, and Mindful Studio Magazine. She was recently featured as a local author at Fairhope Library, where she read one of her essays from her upcoming memoir, I Am Home. And also, Fem South is trying to recruit Kadeen into our book club because she's an avid reader, and we hope that she will spend some more time with us. Kadeen, I'm so happy to have you here with me today. It is a joy being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, how about to set up the conversation, maybe we can start by you telling us a little bit about your journey into homeschool. Why did you decide to homeschool? I think I decided to homeschool because of my academic journey. So I grew up in Jamaica until I was about 11 years old. And while I was there, I felt that we learned mostly out of fear than anything else. Um, for an example, I had a teacher who every morning he would put 25 math equations on the board and we would have 10 minutes to complete them. When the timer was up, he would grade them. And at the end of that, we all kind of sat in panic because we never know who got anything, you know, like what we got right or what we got wrong. And I remember one particular time, 25 problems, I got 24 right. And he gave me 24 slashes across my back and said, if I was dedicated enough to get 24 right, I should have gotten the other one correct. And so for me, what that did was I became a really good student, but it was really out of fear. So when I moved to the United States, I was in the sixth grade. And basically what I was learning in the sixth grade, I had already learned in the fourth grade in Jamaica. Therefore, for a couple years, well, I didn't learn anything new and I wasn't challenged. And so after elementary school, uh, we had the option of two high schools. And what happened was I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, which was basically a ghetto. Uh, it was considered the Black Hood. And so um, my parents, when it came time for us to go to high school, they were very concerned 
because one high school, you had to have talent, and I didn't have that yet. And the other one was prone to drive-bys and shootouts. And so my mother decided to try to rent a room in a white town for me to go to high school. When we went to the lady's house, she basically uh, slammed the door in our faces and told us that the room was taken. But it was only because she saw that we were black and we didn't look what our last name was, which is Henriquez at the time. When they decided then to put us in a different school system, they had to basically borrow a zip code. And my mom actually paid a stranger in Orange High for me to go to Orange High School. While I was there, we had a school police officer who left red roses in my locker and um, new edition CDs. And when I decided not to give him kisses and sex as he wanted, he basically said that he was going to tell the principal about my borrowed zip code. So then I left Orange High School. I went to Irvington High School and Irvington High School, I basically entered through a um, metal detector. And they basically body tap you down and make sure that you didn't have anything on you that was illegal, although kids found a way to do that. Um, while I was there for two weeks, I was brand new and this young girl took it up on herself to keep pulling my hair. And one day when she pulled my hair and I couldn't take enough, I just made a plan. And one day when she was in the locker room, she kind of raised her hand up and I took it as my chance at that time to defend myself. So I slammed her hand in the locker and I kept it there until she started to cry. And I basically kind of threatened her. And <laughs> uh, that part of me, I didn't know who that was. So it was kind of strange to get to that point where I was pushed to be something that I was not. So I asked my mom to figure out a way to transfer me. And so she basically paid another stranger um, Miss Green, some money for me to stay at her house during the week. And then she would come and get me on the weekends. And so that was high school. And then when I got to college, my father had just died the year that I got into college. And I feel like for the first year and a half, I just felt that school wasn't for me. Education wasn't for me. I just didn't want to be there. And there was this one professor, Professor Jose Sanchez. And, and it's interesting how I met him because I went into school with the intent of studying communications. And while I was in the class, the professor at the time must have been really in love with Britney Spears because everything on the syllabus, like I stroll through, everything on the syllabus was about Britney Spears. Either we were going to be reading something about her or we were going to be watching one of her videos. And I think at that moment, something was just like, this is not right. And I got up and he looked at me and he kind of turned around. He looked at me and I kept walking towards the desk. And he, you know, he was just kind of confused. And I was confused because I didn't know what I was doing either. And I just remember throwing the syllabus down on the desk. And I said, if this is what you're studying, I want no part of it. And I walked out. And when I walked out, I literally found a corner that I was like crying in. And I only felt somebody on my shoulder who said, do you want to talk about it? And it was Professor Jose Sanchez. I had taken one of his class the summer before and really loved sociology. But you know, in college, prerequisites comes first. And so I had to do all of that stuff, which to me felt like I was being buried alive, honestly. The prerequisites, it just killed me. And so when he said, hey, do you remember taking my class? I was just like, yeah, I do. And he was like, well, come sign up for more. And so I took one of his classes that semester and I just fell in love with sociology. I fell in love with learning. And I was just like, this is, this is amazing. You know, the learning process is actually a beautiful thing. I just think some people don't belong in the classroom. And so um, 
for my own children, I just wanted to be, I wanted to be a safe space where I can teach them out without fear and I can still challenge them and expect great things from them because I think that they are, they come equipped with beautiful things to share. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that one was something that really captivated me when we talked earlier. Okay. And it's a nice lead into my next question for you. Um, we are reading Bell Hooks, Teaching to Transgress, which is all about a pedagogy focused on decolonizing what she calls white patriarchal capitalist institutions and about teaching liberatory education for critical consciousness. So I know you haven't read with us in the book club, but I do see a lot of similarities in your approach to homeschooling. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like selecting the curriculum that you selected? And when we talked, you talked a lot about supplementing that curriculum and like the choices that you're making in that. So when I first started with homeschooling, I thought the best thing to do was to get one curriculum from one place pay one price and not be consumed by a lot of other things because there are a lot of curriculums out there to choose from. So when we first chose Abeka, I chose it because of the price and because I am Christian and it was a Christian curriculum and, and I just wanted a one-stop shop kind of thing. When we got it, however, within the first couple of months, I saw that the schedule that they set for you was something that didn't sit well with our family. So we were, we would wake up at early in the morning, and we would start school at eight. But sometimes we weren't done until five. And I saw where that was really stealing the joy from my children. And so the next year, I decided to keep their math and their language, uh, forget about their history, because I felt like it was very whitewashed. And we basically picked up a story of the world. After I read A Well-Trained Mind, which is a really great book to get if you're deciding to homeschool, after reading that book, I really wanted to go ahead and get the Story of the World book because the view that they take with history, it's not just U.S. history or um, Alabama history. It's really like a, a broad stretch of history. So it starts with ancient civilization and it kind of moves you through the modern times. And so I wanted my kids to learn in that way. I also find that their science was very word heavy. And for me, I wanted to watch my children create things in science, not just sit and read the words. And so I had to drop their science as well. And so now I only have their language and I have their math, but then I have another history from another place and science from another place. And so I think as our homeschooling life evolved, I recognize that one curriculum does not fit for us. Um, and so for science, we decided to do this guy, the happy scientist, and we absolutely loved him. You know, with homeschooling, it, you do have to spend some money to get the resources that you want because the ones that are readily available, they're not really that great. And so for us, a subscription to happy scientists at the time was worth it because this guy really loved science. And so to watch him enjoy it and then teach the kids at home through video it, it was lovely to watch. Um, my children learned how to make butter from this guy, you know, or he taught you what was in your backyard or what birds do you want to feed in the area that you're living in and how to attract them to your yard. And so for me, picking and choosing from different places has been how I've approached building my curriculum. There's not one curriculum that's going to be good for you, period. So for somebody like me who's not really 
familiar with a lot of homeschooling, but I have done Montessori type schooling for my kids and we've learned in different countries as well. Um, one of the questions that I always have though is like, can you pick any curriculum that you want or does there become a point where you do have to start looking at what is required for getting into college and graduating? Like, where's that, where's that line? I think once credit comes into the picture, that's usually around high school time. So if you're starting with your kids, like I did with third grade, so third through eighth grade, we got to set a foundation of learning, period. But then once my daughter got into high school, that's when I started being concerned about making sure that some of the classes that she was taking is in alignment with getting the credit for it for high school. Yeah, I think that's probably what a lot of parents are really afraid of is looking down the road. Like, what do I teach now so that down the road, they'll be able to be on par with everyone else? I really wasn't concerned about credits. I didn't even see it until we got to high school where I was just like, okay, well, she's going to need credits for this. And so that's when I started being like, okay, well, these are the classes I want you to take. But then I would also add things to her to her, to whatever they were given her, because I feel like what they were given were still weren't enough. Okay. So you did have to like add on to. Yes. Yeah. I supplement a lot of my kids' work and assignments. So what does homeschooling then look like in your house? How do you structure your, your day, essentially? God, I feel like I'm going to be talking a long time on this one. <laughs> um, so my children wake up in the mornings around 7.30 every morning. And before we start any kind of learning, they have to know that they take care of their beds, right? Beds are, they have to be made in my house. Um, they take care of their bodies and then they come out and they kind of have breakfast together. Usually they have an hour and a half before we meet at the table at nine o'clock. And in that hour and a half that they have, they kind of just, they wake up, right? I think they need time to wake up. And so once they get to the table at nine o'clock, I have what I've called um, table time. And table time is it just it really varies. So let's let's take for an example Monday mornings. A couple of years ago I find that when the kids woke up, they weren't ready to learn right away. And Mondays, I don't know what it is. Mondays get a bad name. You know, like nobody wants to go into a Monday morning. And so I find that if I can start a fun way to start the morning, it's not that bad. We do art on Monday mornings. And usually within like 30 minutes, you can see them kind of just kind of waking up and the colors are coming out. And if it's watercolor or acrylic or lately we've been doing Zentangles and we did a Kente weave the other day, um, I find that they they wake up. And so art on Mondays is usually like set in stone. After art time, we do calendar time, which basically, you know, this is where the business part comes in because I want them to be responsible for their time. I don't want them to abuse their time and I definitely don't want them to abuse my time. And so on calendar time, they tell me what tests they have coming up, what they need for the week, and I make sure that I write it on my calendar so that I could get it to them. I tell them if they have a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment and they put it in so that our calendars are in sync. After we've done calendar time, then they move into their independent studies. And this is where, you know, this year we're doing virtual school. We started it last year, actually, um, where they kind of go into their own independent studies and they do that for a couple of hours and then they have their lunch. And in the afternoons, it's all about finishing up what you didn't finish up in the mornings. 
But during this time, I also find it important and necessary to connect with each kid throughout the day. And so we'll take a break and I'll pull one kid out and say, meet me in the hammock. If it's nice out, if it if it's cold and it's wintertime, then, you know, come to my room and we will hang out on the floor, or hang out on the bed. But during that time, it's really just to connect with that person's heart. Where are they? What do they need? What questions do they need answered? And that is really just our time together. I started out timing that too. I time everything. Um, <laughs> but at first I started out with 10 minutes and now we're up to 30 minutes because they don't really warm up until, you know, after 10 minutes where they're like, let me ask mommy the hard stuff. And I really look forward to that time in the afternoon. And I think they do as well because it's a time for them and just for me. So um, then in the afternoon, like around three or so, three, three thirty, they usually get into their extracurricular activities. My kids all play the piano. And so that's also timed. You put it on the timer in the kitchen. And when the beeper goes off, you know that it's the other person's turn. And then after that, we do dinner. We eat dinner together every, every day. There's not a day that we don't eat dinner together. I think, I think ending the day, the day that way is a real powerful thing to say. We know a lot of things happen throughout our day. But at the end of the day, we're here and we're doing it together. We're doing life together. On Tuesdays to Fridays, it's a little different. Uh, because we don't do art Mondays. What we do, however, is still table time. Last year, we did the poet Rupi Kaur, uh, who's a Punjabi woman who lives in Canada. She's a real powerful artist, um, artist and writer. And so we studied her poetry last year, and we did Khalil Gibran, uh, loved him. They thought his work was lengthy, but honestly, they complained through it. But I feel like he's the most quoted in my house. <laughs> So when your children are acting like you're torturing them, keep doing it because honestly, they it's it's the poetry that that they have to really play with a lot or really kind of argue through that in the end means something meaningful to them, such as life, right? <laughs> um, every year I start my homeschooling with a motto. And last year, the motto was every day one ought to hear a good song, read a good poem, see a fine picture and speak a few reasonable words. I would add to this the need for love. Without it, the rest is dust. And so every morning when we sit at table time, that is something that we repeat because I want this to be a fat part of their fabric, right? I want poetry and I want wisdom to be a part of their fabric. And so when we do that, usually at table time, if it's not a poem, it's a song. If it's a video that I watched that touched me in some way or it taught a lesson that I think I want to pass on to them, I allow other people to be teachers, right? And I think that's that's where I am now in my mothering teaching journey since they're on virtual school this year is how do I facilitate? How do I still offer wisdom? And how do I use other people in the safety of my home to teach my children? Can I just say that sounds so utopian? <laughs> is it does it do you have your kids do they ever complain or is it just like I'm ready to absorb everything you have to give me, mommy, and I'm so excited to be learning today? Or do you have to wrestle and wrangle them in sometimes. It's funny because the other day we were having dinner and I said, I brought my poetry book out like around the dinner table. <laughs> and I said, you know, guys, I just, if someone could just read poetry to me and my oldest said, oh my God, no. <laughs> no, no poetry at dinner, mommy. Like you get to teach us during the day, but dinner table is off limits. And so, no, it is not as, um, it's a lot of work. I think it's there's a lot of mindfulness that goes into it. 
my kids break down all the time, but I, when they break down, there is a space for them, right? I, I think learning is really hard. And one of the things that I explain to my children, listen, being a kid is hard. It's your first time doing it, you know? And so when things are hard, and if I'm making it hard, I want you to tell me, mommy, that was really hard for me, or you're expecting too much, and we, we'll talk about it. And maybe it's my personality. I don't have a problem having hard conversations as long as I know that we can wade through that together. Yeah. Wow. I'm just fantasizing about my kids sitting at the table letting me read poetry, <laughs> which I've done, actually. We've had moments where we, we used to have, and we haven't done this in a while, we used to have teach each other something interesting Thursday night dinners. So everybody would bring something to teach the everyone to the table on right. Thursday evenings, and that might be for me a poem. Um, and so they have heard me read poetry to them, but still, like, I guess this is kind of getting into another question. I want to ask you about the sacrifice that you make. You know, you have put so much time into your kids and um, you've had to basically give up a lot of your own, your career, essentially, to do this every day, day in and day out for so long. Can you talk a little bit about that sacrifice and, and, and what it means to you? And, and um, are you happy that you made it? So I often joke and I say that it's interesting that I got a master's degree to sit at home and play with rocks with my kids. So I say this because I remember when I was teaching Marco Lee how to read. First, we started with spelling his name, and he was small at the time. So what I would do is I would go outside and I would get rocks, because he was really into rocks at the time, and I would put each letter onto a rock, and then I would scramble it up in a Ziploc bag. And while I was doing something with the older girls, then his responsibility was to spell his name with the rocks. And I remember one day breaking down and I was like, what on earth am I doing over here with a master's degree? Like, what was the point? What is the point of that? I think throughout the years, I've still asked myself that question. But I feel like when I see my 16-year-old get to the place where she's entering the 12th grade next year, or when she says to me that I enjoy trigonometry, and I'm looking at her like, what? I hated algebra. <laughs> But when I see them become who they're becoming, it's very rewarding. Like people complain about their teenage daughters or their teenage sons. And I feel like I went through a hard time when Zarai was like for about a year. And after that, I feel like just the fact that she knew that she was in a safe space, then she was able to talk about all of what she was experiencing. And so I feel like the sacrifice for me was worth it because I know my kids. Like I know them. I know when the light bulb goes off. I know when I say something and they don't get me. I can just look in their eyes and I know them. And the fact that I can know somebody and they can know me that way and still love me, <laughs> I think that's a powerful thing. And so for me, the sacrifice has been worth it because I'm 39 and I look at it as if I spend another couple of years with my son who is 11 now and I give, them, give him the foundation that I've given the girls, I will still have time to put energy into writing and creating and doing the things that I love to do. And I haven't stopped doing those things. I've done it on a smaller scale. I, I, I say I steal time all the time because I'll take 10 minutes and I'll go write a sentence and rework the sentence and come back to them. So I feel like if you're homeschooling and you try not to lose yourself completely, because I've met people who do that as well, where I'm going to homeschool my kids. I'm not going to think about my career. I'm not going to think about anything else. 
And for me, I think that's a pity because in feeding myself, I can, I feed them more. That's a really good point. I think a lot of people feel like they have to sacrifice everything to do something like this. I also think, and I don't know if you, this is really a question, but I also think that there's a lot of devaluing the education role in the home so that people are always thinking, oh, I have to go do something more or other than what I'm doing here because what I'm doing here doesn't have value outside of the home. But I think that's a really sh- a real shame. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that bleeds into our education system as well, even educators. Like as parents, we drop our kids off at the school every day because we have a job or something that we need to do or want to do for ourselves. And we tune out everything. We tune out what they're learning. Um, we might ask, you know, what did you learn today when you get home from school? But, but like you said, you know your kids. Like there's something about dropping your kids off all day long for that length of time every day, day in and day out. You just don't know what they're learning. I've often said I want to be a fly on the wall to see what they're learning. But I think that if I did, I probably would be mad most of the time. So it's one of those things like, I know for myself, I just kind of put it out of my mind, but it eats away at me too, as an educator, to not have that control of their education, especially when they come home and they say something that I think is just not correct at all, or they don't, they just don't get exposed to the things that I would want to teach them. And so I come in and supplement them. But then again, I'm also fighting this system that is already well established in their minds. So now I'm just mommy saying, you know, they roll their eyes oftentimes at me when I talk about some things and, oh, that's just mommy talking and not mommy as educator talking. Mm. So like mommy as an educator, in other words, is something for them that's difficult to even see in that sense. So I think we lose something when we drop our kids off every day and just let somebody else have access to them and teach them. Right. So that's interesting because for me, you know, like people will say, well, why are you virtual? Why are you doing virtual school this year? And for me, it's learning is so much more than academics, right? So now I have a resource that is right here at my fingertip. Why would I not use it? I'm going to use it because I understand that learning is not just about books and computer. What I've done over the years is I have geared really hard and and focused really intently on my children's emotional well-being, right? their emotional intelligence, their creative passions and pursuits. What are those things that feed them? I left the house a while ago and my daughter had a breakdown. And I said, you know, you need to think about what, what, what brings you alive again. You know, like so often we ask the question about what do you love, but what, do you, what brings you alive? And so I have created a space where when I ask that question, she can go back to that and pick it up and say, well, I need to do this for myself. I need to feed myself in this way, right? And so um, for me, the virtual school is, yes, teach them, but I'm also going to be in the background supplementing as they go forward. I'll never not teach world history while they're learning U.S. history, right? I'll never not do a science project on, on, on Fridays because I feel like that's when the real learning takes place and it's actually cemented in, in their heads and in their hearts, Yeah, you've also provided them a lot of tangible learning material, which they don't get in class, too. Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned that you're now sending your kids to virtual school. Can you talk about that decision to go to virtual school? What were some of your fears? What were some of your motivations to do that? So 
we moved a lot, right? And so when I got to California, Zarai took a class, took an eighth grade class. And then when we moved to Panama City Beach, she was supposed to start in ninth grade. And we did book work. We went back to book work. When she was supposed to start 10th grade, I decided to do the Florida Virtual School and have her just take some of the classes from Florida Virtual, especially math, because I wasn't, I'm not really good at math. And so when I noticed that they were really good at the math part, then she said, well, can I try doing all my classes there? And so when we moved here, that was the idea. We went to the school, applied and everything, got in. And then when they were going over her curriculum, they were like, well, we don't need world history. We don't need. And they start checking off the things that we did at home that they thought weren't good enough or it didn't fit into what they needed for high school. Fast forward a couple of months or a year or something, and she is still graduating next year as a 16 year old with all the things that she needed. So for me, I still can't comprehend how they're not accepting certain things, but she still has all the credits that she needs for these classes. Also, she's 16. How is she graduating at 16 years old? So she'll be graduating next year and she'll oh, just okay. turn 17. Oh, okay. So her counterparts right now are all in the 10th, going into 11th grade. Okay. Is and it just because she's academically ahead or is it a birthday issue? It's academically ahead. Oh, okay. You've managed to keep them academically ahead, whereas a lot of people are afraid that they'll be academically behind. Right. So even with Zahara, who is my, um, she was supposed to do seventh grade last year. She did eighth grade instead. Because when she took the placement test, like she was advanced. The, the counselors kind of asked me what I was doing at home. And I said, well, we read a lot. We do a lot of, you know, like extra studying and all of that stuff. And so they were like, well, whatever you're doing in reading, just keep doing it because she's off the charts. And this is the same student who uh, in seventh grade, took Algebra 1 and passed it. So they are academically ahead of their counterparts. Okay. So then when you get into the actual just accepting credits or not accepting credits, it, it it's really about taking placement tests and then also just whether or not that particular subject is something that they is not in the curriculum. What I'm confused about is like, how do the credits get tallied by the school? Because at the end of the day, You've got to graduate with a diploma, right? a high school diploma. Right. And so how do they look at the credits? Is it based on like subject matter? Like, so for example, in this high school, we teach world history, AP world history in um, 10th grade at Fairhope. Mm. So if she's taking world history at home with you, would that then transfer over, transfer over yes. as the world history she would be taking? Right. Taking the, and how does the AP system work then at home and for homeschooling? Do they consider? No. So you just like don't even go the route of AP and so, the IB? Yeah. So for me, I find it really interesting that some kids can be taught at regular and some kids could be taught AP. I, I have a real struggle with that. I think if you're going to teach, why not teach? I don't. I really have a struggle. With I have that. a struggle with that too. It's it's really difficult for somebody who teaches college. I see how so many kids who don't go AP route in English mm. are so far behind. I mean, I rarely get actually an AP English person. I get high school students who are AP who are still in high school who are trying to get their college credits, mm. and they're they're doing both. But then just the regular kids that went through high school and didn't do AP are so far behind. 
I mean, so far behind. So it makes my job incredibly difficult, but it also is very disempowering for those students. I don't know why they do it that way. I think it's um, a disservice to the the kids. Ultimately, they end up not being able to, whether they're going to catch up in junior college, because I teach at a junior college, Mm. um, whether they're going to catch up is in a semester is not likely, Hmm. you know, so they'll spend their entire college careers and adult lives struggling to catch up from what they could have gotten if they would have taken an AP English class, for example. Right. I feel like the vocabulary that even like with that, it's only when I got into teaching a high schooler that I started seeing even that where some kids are regular and some kids are honors. And for me, I don't think it should be that way. I think challenging all kids and giving them that space to really kind of learn and grow, I think that would be a great place to start. But to put them on that place where, I don't know, I feel like that's such a divide. It is right? a huge divide. I really feel like that too. Yeah. If actually you saying it and explain it to me that way about even being in your classroom and seeing the difference, to me, that just makes my heart really sad that some are set up to, to succeed and others are set up to fail. And where is it that we drew that line to say that this child don't have the potential? I think one of the things I love about homeschooling, honestly, is when I'm teaching my 16-year-old, I'm teaching my 11-year-old. And some things I will explain on a very higher level to my daughter if she needs to know something. And then I'll break it down for my son. And I think it challenges me as a teacher to understand how to give the information to children on different levels. And I definitely think some flexibility is required in that, but I think we owe it to our children not to just push them down and say, well, you go into the regular and you go into honors. Yeah, I agree. And I have to force my kids, they are required to take AP English no matter what other classes. I try to give them choices, mm. but they don't have a choice in AP English because I see it every day. Right. I see how far behind they are if they don't get AP English. Well, I'm grateful that you said that because now with my 13-year-old entering high school, I will be certain that... <laughs> <laughs> have to. <laughs> Somehow or another, critical thinking and research and all the things that they need for college, somehow they don't think that those kids really need that in the regular courses, so they don't, they don't get it, you know, so I have to do a lot of um, just basic catch-up, hmm. you know, in my classes, so... Okay, so here's my next question then. Are you then not going through the AP route when they do apply for college? Are you concerned then that they don't have some of the things that would make them, you know, make them competitive in the college entry process? I think just hearing you ask that question make me feel like I'm training horses for a show. (laughs) You know, um... I feel like there is a level of like, oh, let's compete all the time. Let's let's break you down and rip you and you got to go keep running and you got to be in competition all the time. I think to teach from that space is very like, it sounds very hostile to me. What I tell my children is when it's time for college, I want you to think, by now I hope to God that they have an idea of what really feeds them, Right. I know that at some point my daughter is either going to be a doctor or a dancer or a dancing doctor because ever since she was 11, that's all she's ever done. And so 
it's a thread, right, that I have seen throughout her life that I know that that's the path she's going to go down, right? So when it comes to colleges, what college is best going to fit and nurture that in you? Not where are you going to fit based on a test that you took. I don't want that to be the case because I think that's where we end up, our generation of people who have gone to these best colleges, have done all the work, but we're unhappy. We don't know who we are. We don't know how to connect to that place within ourselves. We don't know how to feed ourselves. And I think you create a group of people that every time they look at each other, there's this competition and never this celebration of the other human being really surviving so much. I, I definitely don't want that for my children, for the competition for, for college. and Yeah. I think that's a part of what Bell Hooks is really talking about when she talks about education being liberatory and, and coming from that place versus education being a competition. But I think a lot of people forget, too, that our colleges are part, are part of the capitalist system, even though we produce people who will speak out and work against that grain or we get a liberal education, it's still, a, it's still a system, you know? And so how do we counter that with our children in terms of like talking to them about ACT scores, for example? I mean, I'm supposed to be talking to my son about studying for the ACT now because the ACT scores are going to get him into a college, perhaps even a scholarship to be able to afford to go into college. So it feels like it's so hard to fight against that system when you have to kind of work within that system at the same time. I think that's kind of like where homeschool comes in too, is it allows you that. And I think you may, you said something so beautifully, which I'm going to come back to. I'm going to quote you in our conversation earlier. You said homeschool gives you the opportunity to do that dance with your children, that balance between the system, mm -hmm. you know? Right. So even now with, uh, I'm looking forward to another year of virtual school. I am looking forward to watch my children take on these teachers that are teaching them virtually. I want them to take them on in emails and I want them to understand that, okay, well, this person is offering this to you, but if it's incorrect, you can correct them, right? I think early when I was telling my husband that I was going to come and talk to you, he said, babe, you got to tell the story. Uh, we had ordered a curriculum and we were doing fine throughout the whole thing. But there were three mistakes that were made in the book. One was an answer. The other one was a misspelling. And something else had happened. And the kid said, well, we got to do something about this. And I said, well, what do you think we should do about it? And I, I think at the time my son was seven, they were like, well, there got to be somebody we can call. And so they st strolled through the book. And I said, well, there's a publisher there. They called the publisher. I sat on the phone, speakerphone. And I said, if you're going to do it, I'm going to watch you do it. My oldest dialed the number, and when the person came on the phone, um, she said, you know, I just, she was kind of nervous, but she said, I, I have some corrections that I think you should make <laughs> in your upcoming edition of this book. And they explained to her, gave her the pages, and the, uh, the publisher at the time thanked them for calling. And so for me, it's the same thing. I, because I've developed that when they were younger, you can challenge anybody right now, right? And there are teachers who are going to be in virtual school and are going to be in the, the brick and mortar who, you know, they're basically there teaching our children in their actions how to be strong adults. And so for me, I get to stand back and facilitate them this year. And I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about what they're going to learn and what they're going to unlearn and what they're going to recognize as me saying, challenge that. 
because that is not true, right? And when when they give you a resource in the virtual school, uh, what are the other resources that you have picked up on your own? What have you researched, right? And so how do you bring to the table, how do you bring yourself to the table and how do you create and own your voice? Because that's what I've been doing all these years is hoping by now they have a voice of their own that they can use, right? And so I'm looking forward to virtual school. Well, what do you think then about educating against white supremacy in the education system? Ooh, <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> that is but so that's a question in- that a lot of people are, are that's on a lot of people's minds. Right it's now, so ingrained in so many things. And I think in one of my essays, I talked about um, a group of kids sitting down to color and one of the child, um, they were coloring a Walt Disney book. And I remember my son was five at the time. And, she, and he said, what do, what do you think we colored this girl brown? And one of the little girls said, brown is a poopy color, Marco Lee. And I was sitting on the sideline and I heard Marco say, brown is not a poopy color, Olivia. And Olivia said, brown is a poopy color. And what I loved most about that was my son stood up for himself at five years old to say, brown is not a poopy color because that's who I am. And so for me, because in a way I have been like calling it out for years, I don't have a problem. I think my kids can notice it. They notice when they're in a space that, that that's what it's preaching and they know how to stand up against it because he was five. And so now when my kids read something in history, and that's another thing I wanted to, to, to talk about is, you know, history in America is meant to lower the vibrations of black people, period. Like when I noticed when, my, when I was doing history and we were doing real world history and we were like opening up the world to our children, what I realized was there is this like thing in them that wanted to learn more. And then last year, as they are starting to learn U.S. history, it was almost like Every minute you passed the computer, it was something about slavery, 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 slavery. And I, I saw what that was doing to my children. And so what I had to do and what I have decided to do this year is all the history that I'm teaching is pre-colonization. We were people before we were enslaved. We were people before we put in ban- bondage. We were people and we still are, right? And so for me is all about raising their vibrations. Yes, you can learn that. Because that, what, that was what was done to us. But our vibrations is higher than that because we have endured it, right? Mm-hmm. And we're still here and we still keep shining. So for me, it's what books are you reading that's, that's different? Who wrote that book? And I say to my kids, if you can pronounce the name on the book this year, like Bob or Sally, you're not getting it from the library. We need a name that you can't pronounce, that you're challenged to pronounce. Because that means that's coming from a different perspective. For too long, I think white people have told the stories, period. And so I don't need to hear those stories. We're going to hear them naturally. Yeah. And I think that's such a huge part of decolonizing too. But like I often have to predicate, even in my classroom, like this is European history and it has a specific thread that we always talk about, but that's just one, that's just one thread. You know, we are oftentimes led to believe that that's all of history, and it's so not. It's just one tiny, tiny little thread, and there's all these threads all over the place, and you have to really evaluate that, and as somebody who creates a curriculum, I try to do that because, you know, it's, I'm still unlearning 
we're if you we're learn one way, we're all unlearning. Right. We spend a lifetime unlearning. Right. You know, at some point that has to become a movement in education. But homeschooling and supplementing virtual school seems to be that avenue maybe now that we have that we haven't really had before. And maybe even just by virtue of being home and learning in your home, if you can, as a parent, you're seeing it more and you're paying more attention and you're you're developing more space for that interaction. So you can supplement, even if maybe you haven't been used to supplementing in the past, because now your your kids have been doing a face-to-face and you've been dropping them off every day. Right. I just feel like this is kind of like a new time in our development where people are making the decision to virtual school and their children learn at home, starting something new that we haven't really seen before. Right. Who knows where it's going to go? I'm kind of excited about where it's going to go. Well, you get to teach the whole person, right? So last year when Zahara did ninth grade math in the eighth grade, at the end of the year, you know, you have to get your grades. And I remember talking to one of the counselors and the counselor said, well, If she has a 3.5, I wouldn't suggest that you take that credit into high school because she would be starting off with a less than 4.0 GPA. And so for Zahara, it was really stressful because she was like, but I did it. I did it all, mommy. I did. I did all of it that they asked me to do. And now if I don't have a 4.0, I would have to take it over again in ninth grade. And I remember pulling her aside and I said, do you remember the girl who woke up and really spent time on math and When you couldn't get it the way that they offered it to you, you looked up Khan Academy and you looked up all these other resources and you asked me to take you to the library to get books. Do you remember that person? Do you remember the person who is not supposed to be in the eighth grade, right? But you're still doing eighth grade work. You're the person who is responsible. Like the characters that we want to build into our children, right? We're going to get to see those people because you're teaching the whole self. And I said to her, screw the 3.5. Like if that's what you get, that's what you're going into high school with. You're not doing over that whole year because you learned other things along the way. So I'm not going to let them keep you back because of 3.5 GPA. She got her grades and she got a 4.0. So now she's an eighth grader going into ninth grade with a 4.0 done with her math for ninth grade. Yeah, I think maybe people listening might be thinking, oh, you know, I haven't done... (laughs) I haven't done enough for my kids' education. Uh, I know there's a lot of working people out there who can't, you know, be at home with their kids doing this. Um, There's single mothers out there that can't do this. So do you have anything to say about that or maybe like any advice for them or suggestions for what they can do? Yeah, I don't want to be inconsiderate with that because I definitely think it takes a lot of time and energy. And once you are, you know, not at work anymore and you are home, it's almost like you just want to relax. So I don't want to be inconsiderate in answering that question and then making somebody feel like, you know, like, and then, you know, and then for me, it's, it's been a sacrifice. It's been eight years since I've worked outside of the home. And so financially, uh, there are times when I'm like, girl, you're 39 years old, you have no money. (laughs) You know, so I, I just feel like we all have to make sacrifices. And I don't want to be inconsiderate to the person who is the only one making money for their family. And I think reading is so important and so vital to opening up the world to the children that even sometimes they're learning and you don't, you don't know that they're learning so much. So even at bedtime, I know we used to read to our children when they're younger, either you're reading to them or they're reading to you or they're reading before they go to bed. I just feel like reading is what allows the children 
to even tell me about the worlds that they're learning about. You know, so I think if you can't stay home, there has to be some kind of consistent thing that your family have together. And reading is definitely the place to start. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. And I also want to say that maybe that's a part of the conversation to be had during all this right now is that, I mean, our school system is set up so that we can work and we drop our kids off. And there's something about this system that is, you know, so disconnecting. So as we start to talk about education and we talk about these different ways to to restructure our society right now, which I think a lot of people are having these conversations because of the pandemic, um, that we have to see this as a as a holistic thing. Like whatever we say about work is going to bleed into how we look at education. And I don't know what the answer is. Obviously, we need some good thinkers here, but it needs to be a part of the whole conversation. You can't have work over here and education over here because they all go together, right? Right. So living and working, it's all this like, it's it's interconnected, right? It's like a weaving together. Like that's a part of your family's ecosystem, your work, his work. How do you connect that for your child? Like you can't expose them to everything and everybody else's stuff, but you can definitely expose them to yours. So you're talking about that over the dinner table, right? There's this guy a couple of years ago when I, I think I read it or something, and it says, you know, the best part of a meal starts 30 minutes after you've eaten because people don't sit that long after dinner to really be fed by each other. And for me, it's like, no, like, we're going to we're going to eat, but we're going to sit for a little while. We're going to linger a little while around the dinner table. And then you get up and do you, you know, you do your chore and we clean up for the night and we're done with the day. We sit on our couch together. We play Scrabble or watch some kind of TV. You know, I think there is this um, connection that we're missing because we're not lingering long enough. So I noticed that you've talked a little bit about um, Christian curriculum. Have you tried any non-secular curriculum? Do you have any maybe particular curriculum that you that you like? Wow, I think once that year hit me and I realized that I'm not a fundamentalist Christian, I think after that I've been very I've just been exploring. So to say one book in particular, that's kind of difficult for me because I teach from a very eclectic point of view. Um and so over the years I've gathered many books, but I wouldn't say there's one particular curriculum that I would say it's it's secular. But I do teach from a secular perspective. There's some things to the Christian faith that I appreciate and honor, not all of them. And so I'll take what's good from that table and I'll take what's good from another table and I'll, you know, prepare a banquet for my children, basically, and let them feast on the collection of work that I've gathered. You know, with my high school son, he's concerned about falling behind in virtual school. I actually honestly haven't seen our virtual school to know what it looks like. And I know some kids do better with just being in a classroom setting in general, but my son is genuinely worried that he would academically fall behind if he were to go to virtual school. Because a lot of the things like what will be accepted, what will not be accepted, the GPA, all of these things maybe are still floating around in that decision-making because we still, on some level, approach all of this as, okay, well, how can you get into college, and especially if we need to get a scholarship? So do you have any advice then for all the parents out there right now that are trying to make this hard decision to send their kids to virtual school or face-to-face? 
that's hard because this pandemic, I do believe there's <laughs> like, there's some people who are like, send the kids to school. And it's like for me, but you're sending them to danger. And I feel like there's some people who are thinking that there's not a pandemic. So they're ready to send their kids, right? And then there's some that are scared to, but they don't have a choice. Like they have to work, you know? Um, at the end of the day, I think the hardest thing is to make the decision either to send them or not send them. I know the concern with virtual school, though, when it comes to will I fall behind, I think at some point we have to empower our children to know that there are other resources outside of the public school, outside of the virtual school that you have to seek for yourself. And so if there's something that you don't comprehend, that is up to you to find a way to understand it. Like there are a lot of kids who sit in school there's a lesson being taught, they don't get it, they go home, they're frustrated, and they fail, right? How do you empower your children to learn on their own? I feel like that's what homeschool has afforded me or has afforded my children, where I'm always telling them there's more than one way to learn this. Um, I think I was telling you about when I first started teaching Zarai, my oldest, multiplication, and I remember teaching her the standard way of doing it, the way that we've always, we've all learned it this way. And I remember her looking at me like really confused, like it just didn't make any sense to her brain. And it was just like, no matter how much I explained it to her, how many times I did it with her, like she just didn't get it. And I remember saying to myself, well, what on earth? How else can I teach this thing to this kid, you know? And instead of looking at her like she was broken or she wasn't getting it, I remember researching and finding that uh, in Italy, they did it a different way, which is called the Gelosia method. And when I, when I showed this to her, like the first time I showed it to her, it was almost like a light bulb went off in her face. And I was like, holy moly, I taught her a different way. And so now, although she's been exposed to the standard way of learning, she has a different approach to it. When it was time for me to teach Zahara, my second one, I taught her the standard, I showed her the Gelosia method, and she too was like, all right, I get it, but I, I don't like it. And so I researched again, and I found Vedic Mathematic, which is the Indian way of learning multiplication, and she fell in love with that. And so for me, it was fun after that to see how many ways I can find the answer. And when it was my son's turn, I researched and found the Chinese way. And once you brought sticks into the equation, my son was all over it. I think the point of that story is there is more than one way. There are a lot of resources out there. What we have to do as parents is empower our children to know that they can seek that information for themselves, right? We're not going to always be there to feed them information of how to be and how to exist and how to interact with people. We teach them the basic and then tell them, you go out now, you do it that way. And when you learn a new way, you better come back and teach me something, right? And I think it's empowering to have them say, you know, okay, well, there is a new way and I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach mommy about it. So in closing, I just have something real brief to share. So there was a time when I brought all three of my babies home, right? And you remember when you wake up at nights, you're really tired, you're exhausted, like, but this baby needs to be fed, right? You feed the baby and you try to put them back in the crib and they wake up again and you have to wake up and your eyes are real tired. And you feed them. And just before they learn how to smile, they have a little smirk. And in that moment, for me, I feel like this kid was trying to smile at me because I fed them and they were grateful. I think 
all our children still have that. They have a way of still smirking and smiling when we fed them. And every day I look for that in my children. Every single day, I still look for the smirk smile. And I think if, you're, if you've decided to homeschool, if you decided to virtual school, if you decided to send your children back to school, I think on your end, all you have to do is still try to find a time in your day, whenever it is, even before they go to bed, to find the smirk smile. So thank you so much, Kadeen, for being on the show with me and talking about this important topic right now. You're such a huge inspiration. I can't tell you, like, I'm just sitting here thinking my brain is just going off like, oh, there's so many different things that I want to do as a parent to teach my kids. And um, so I so much appreciate you being on here. And I'm happy that I got a chance to meet you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. All right. Well, Fem South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment. And we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with FemSouth, you can go to our website at FemSouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. If you're local, you can find our events on our Facebook book club group and come out and join us. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to Fem South.